Hello there, you're listening to Context, giving you a biblical perspective on issues of race, inequality, gender, abortion, culture, and so much more with Temba Lamini. Hello and welcome to Context. If this is your first time here, welcome. We are thrilled that you have chosen to spend this time with us. And I know we're going to have a good time learning and equipping so we can live an effective life for Jesus in our context. My next guest is a sister who loves Jesus Christ. She has a passion for not only this city, Johannesburg, but she has a passion for South Africa and largely the poor and disadvantaged of this country. And before we get into our discussion today, I am going to play you an appetizer so that you can we can wet your appetite before we dive into the details of exactly what it is that we're going to be discussing today. My story really begins with the first family that linked their lives to mine. It must have been around the end of 1989 or early 1990 when I was just eight months old that I could say the first link to the chain of my progression was first formed. My father and mother, both Zulu, were forced to flee their rural home where the frightening political violence in Natal had erupted due to the African-on-African conflict between the ANC and the IFP, which was instigated by the apartheid government at the time. And with nothing but the clothes on their backs and an eight-month-old me, my parents managed to escape the devastation and ended up at the doorstep of a white family the Richards family who lived in the suburbs of Lelouchia. They did not only open their doors to us, but they changed the trajectory of mine and later my little sister's lives for years to come. Now that I've wet your appetite, the guest on studio today is a community builder, a purpose pioneer (laughs) with a passionate interest for creative and social entrepreneurship as well as non-profit organizations. She is currently the CEO of Makers Valley Partnership, which is an NGO, a non-profit organization, which is community-based on the east side of Johannesburg. And she's also a director of the Change Collective Africa, as well as a board member of City Kids. As you can tell, she's wearing a lot of hats and she, by the way but the, the main thing that we've got on studio here is to help us as if you listen to last week's podcast we were discussing how as believers we can resolve to love God with everything and love neighbor as ourselves and we were diving deeper into this whole concept of empathy and we discussed the fact that as a nation in fact not just a nation the world over there appears to be an empathy deficit and and so when we want to be believers we cannot divorce the requirement for us to be empathetic to those who are close to us and that's why the bible says let us love neighbor as ourselves and part of loving neighbor as ourselves is for us to love those who are less privileged than us and help them as Christ would have helped them. We are effectively as believers an extension of the arm of Christ. Tobile, welcome. Hi, Timber. <laughs> Thank you. That was a mouthful, but absolutely incredible. Your knowledge and your memory is just absolutely amazing as well. But thank you. Thank you for having me. No, thank you. And I know there's other hats that I didn't mention. But uh, <laughs> but yeah, but I think there's something that you, you, you speak about 
in the work that you do at Makers Valley, which is the the well-being economy. Yes. You know, maybe you want to just tell us tell us what it is, and also how can our listeners get behind the work that you do? You know, to try and help and sort of put their shoulders to the wheel uh, in the in the area of poverty alleviation. Sure. So, yeah, our community, Makers Valley, is like you said in the east of Johannesburg CBD, and it is what people would call impoverished but we like to think of people as assets and communities as assets so there's an approach called asset-based community development and it's really about saying actually we can have this mindset of we are deficit we don't have enough we are poor or we can say actually what do we want to achieve what is our vision what is our focus where do we want to be what do we have that can get us there and so that's the approach that we take that will get us to the specific vision. And the vision that we agreed upon through participatory processes in our community was this concept of a well-being economy. Mm. And it's it, it sounds very fancy, but it is quite simple. It's about an economy that puts people and planet before profit. Mm-hmm. And that just came about, I mean, I don't even think our community even uses that kind of language, but the language that was put forward was how do we make sure that our people are looked after Mm -hmm. that we care about each other that there is this concept it's not just a concept of ubuntu but we are living that in our community how do we make sure that we're in a clean and safe environment where people are respectful of each other that there's no drinking on the sidewalks and people you know doing public urination on the parks Mm. um so it was just about how can we really think about a better community and i think it was so important having that step to visualize what we want to see because so often people don't have a sense of future they don't have a sense of what can become and so you're just stuck in the everyday hustle moment to moment of just trying to get by and no one has ever given you an opportunity to dream and Mm, think mm, about mm. what's um, to come or what could be better. So that's how it started. Even the name Makers Valley was through this process of what do we want to call ourselves? Like, what is our name? What is our identity? And if you don't do that, it's very hard to to get a community together and brainstorm where you want to go. So the Makers Valley is really just a name that everyone came up with mm. to, to emphasize that we are makers. It's got a history of creativity, of artisans, people making, you know, car fixing workshops and steel workers, metal workers, artisans, but also this concept specifically coming from the youth of we want to be change makers. We want right, to change right. our community. And so A long story short, uh, one of the people that was doing this process, he was doing his doctorate on spatial justice, which you were speaking about in terms of how different spaces were and infrastructure were designed to kind of yeah reduce specific people groups and he was working in this community at the time and he realized through what was saying through what this participatory process was saying was perhaps there's a need for a different economy right right and this is where the well-being economy steps in it's where it's it's not a defined thing mm-hmm. it's basically a movement an international movement with a lot of international organizations governments citizens individuals just people knowing that the current economic system is not helping 
Right. It's not creating social justice. It's not creating an environment that is that is regenerative. Um, and so how do we make sure that our economy and the way that we live as humans in a society is going to bring about the things that we want to see? Right, right. And yeah, and by the way, as you were just mentioning that we were speaking about spatial justice, um, for the benefit of our listeners, we, we had the discussion before we started the recording, but nonetheless, we were discussing how space, you know, you know, by design, back in the history of South Africa, you know, so many people were displaced. And so obviously that is one of the uh, contributors to the socioeconomic imbalances mm. that we're currently experiencing. And I think what would be even helpful for the listeners as well is you yourself, you know, as your family growing up, if I'm not mistaken, in Inanda, in KZN, where your family was displaced because of the violence that was taking place there. Maybe you want to take us through your story, obviously, b based on you, what you experienced in terms of the South African socioeconomic slash political space back in the as early as the 80s uh, mm. early 90s and how that impacted the person that you are today and uh, influences your passion for helping those who are disadvantaged sure yeah so i um was only eight months at the time that this kind of culminated but i was born in 1989 so this was probably late 89 early 90s and this is just stories that i'm hearing from my family right, in right. terms of how i've been brought up and it also just reminds me that there's there more conversations that need to take place within my family because i think a lot of that has been withheld because of the hurt that's been experienced. But to cut a long story short, my family, um, specifically my father's family were I ANC, um, family supporters of ANC, and there was obviously the IFP and ANC clashes at the time, and they were living in territory that was predominantly IFP. Mm. And the way that I understand it was that it became really, really tense, the violence, the unrest, and my family's uh, my father's family was impacted by fire. They burnt their homestead. And what they had done is my father just gathered my mother and me, who was eight months old at the time, and rushed to where he was employed mm. to the family that he knew. So it was late at night. He went to the household of the owners of the gym that he worked at. Right. And he knocked on the door. He, you know, the, the daughter of the family that owned the gym, her name is Kim Richards, and she was about to, in her 20s uh, at the time. She opens the door and she says that as she opened the door, she felt what she didn't know what it was at the time, but she said she just felt a deep connection between her and I. Um, she said she, it was like electricity. She's sure. she's like a wow. yeah. She said it was just absolutely incredible. She didn't. She wasn't a, like a faith or believer at the time, and um, that only came in her later years. But now she alludes that to being the Holy Spirit. She sure. said it was a definite connection, and she didn't know what that was. Wow. Um, and so that's something that I've always held on to. And even, even in my faith experience, it's something that I know that God specifically connected us to that family sure. that day. Mm. And it's something that I hold on to. So, yeah, that was eight months. My, that family then immediately gave my father and my mother and me a place to stay. Right. So a little, little one room place at the back of the gym. And my father continued to work at the gym. My mother also started working at the gym in junior care, looking after the kids. And I grew up 
basically at the back of this gym. I, sure. That lady, Kim Richards, is a dance teacher. She taught hip hop. So I was dancing from a little tot, always attending that. And me and her became very close. Just, yeah, taking me out to ice cream. She just, I mean, she was also young at the time, sure. but really just developed a close relationship. And because I think her parents had always been like that. They had, mm. I think they came from Zambia, came to South Africa. So they've always had this mentality of let's help the people that are not helped intentionally through this government system. So I think her parents, they wouldn't call themselves activists, but they were always, they, you know, were always known for helping specifically black people in their environments the way that they could. And just providing us with a place to stay was incredible. Right. My father, however, was... Um, obviously going through an incredible, like, an incredible amount of trauma and struggle and anger and, anger and mm. frustration and also trying to figure out who he is. I mean, as a, as a Zulu man now having to beg for a place to stay and work, it's definitely not, I don't think in terms of what I remember of him and his character. He was a cool guy, liked to dress in leather jackets, you know, had a motorbike and I know he... He had high ambitions for his life, but was put in a place that he couldn't realize those ambitions. So mm, sure. he um, was a heavy drinker and became an extreme alcoholic where I could see his personality completely changed. One moment he's singing happy birthday and, and like an amazing dad, like precious father. And then another minute he's completely out of it um, yeah, very abusive to my mother, like sure. extremely to the point of almost murdering her. So it was living in those extremes that I saw that people are very complex. There are there's so many dynamics to a human being. You can love this one human being with all their amazing attributes to them. And then at the, at the time, they have a completely different side and struggle that they're facing. Sure. And so I think dealing with that complexity, I was maybe six when I had to call people, there were people living on the street just outside the gym to come and help them come and help my mother just get out of the situation that she was with my father. And I think it's those moments that I always look back to just knowing that Sure, families uh, and the way that my dad had then been impacted by the way that he had grown up in the in the apartheid system um, was very, very, very complex. Mm. And throughout that, he he was very abusive. He didn't get any help. Um, he ended up being arrested for car theft sure. in KZN. And it was at that time, the Richards family, Kim and her family had moved already to Johannesburg and they could see the repeated abuse upon my mother. Then when he was eventually arrested, they said, come up to Joburg. Sure. Let's kind of try figure out another life for you. And my, my little sister had been born at that time. So they moved us up to Joburg flew us, I'll never forget, it was my sister's first time on an airplane, come to Joburg. And at that time, my mother, <clears throat> they could only find her a job in Pretoria whilst they were living in Bryanston. So my mother left, well, she actually worked in Pretoria with my sister, my little sister, who was very young at the time. And then because there was a school available, Bryanston Primary, which was government and through pleas and, you know, processes, we were able to get in with the discounted uh, school fees. So it ended up with me and my mom not living together. My mom living in Pretoria and me living in Bryanston with 
another mom. And I would say I have many moms because sure. this that household, we were just very, very dynamic family. So I grew up in a really, I would say it's still something that I process today, just in terms of having two mothers predominantly, even though I had more, but two mothers with very different identities or different characters. Um, my biological mother is is quite introverted. She um, is really humble and respectful, and she's she's not like a worldly person. Sure. She works very hard. Um, and yeah, her discipline and, and the way that she was brought up was very, very different to Kim, who is extroverted, dance teacher, uh, vegetarian. Uh, was we at, at her house, we didn't eat meat, for example. It was like she was making us watch Chicken Run <laughs> and the Babe movies to to like showcase like what, a, you know, obviously, like I said, she's grown up in a very activist household. She was very passionate about um, animals and, and respecting animals. So I grew up in very different households, sure. sometimes on the weekend with my mother and then um, with Kim at Bryanston. And I felt growing up that it was you also eat chicken when you're with your mother yes <laughs> <laughs> Shame. Kim did allow us to eat fish and chicken but meat was a no-go and then yeah definitely with my mom um we used to eat all sorts of things like intestines chicken feet whatever and eventually my mom still then came to live with us but that was when I found it very difficult and this was now approaching my teenage years and searching who I was as an individual sure. and, and my identity. I found it very difficult to live under this household with two very different mothers and trying to showcase my respect to both. Um, I felt I was never adequate for either because if I was with Kim, she was always trying to get me to be more extroverted and trying to, to live the way that she lived. Right. And with my mom, I could see that she was disappointed with you know, if I'd follow Kim or follow Kim's ways. Um, there was a scenario once where my mom's um, mother passed away in KZN and she wanted us to go to the funeral and she wanted us, there was a whole ceremony around that um, in terms of, uh, to this day, I don't actually know because Kim, for example, at that stage was completely against it. Sure. Saying that, you know, where is my mom taking me in KZN? Isn't it unsafe? We could be raped. Um, also just the whole process and the ceremony and the ancestors that process she was obviously very against as well mm. and that always put like a, a it was conflicting because do i it's my mother's mother who's sure. just passed away and then i hear what my mother my other mother kim is trying to say and so there were moments like that where there were big issues and very different ideologies in the mm. way that they had mm. grown up that made it quite difficult for me to process and um, understand who who would I follow at that young age and so also just living in a very multicultural home like learning going to a braai with Kim's family for example in a very white community and you'd be the only black child in the room sure. and and trying to navigate that kind of space and like how do you speak in this kind of environment and then if I'm going on the bus for example with my mother or a taxi and almost 
changing the way that I speak because now I'm the only, well, we all black on that taxi. There's no sure. white people around. Mm -hmm. But my Zulu, uh, you know, completely like was lost at that stage. So trying to navigate now, how do I engage with people on this taxi? How do I even change this Bryanston accent that I've had because I grew up with Kim and, and went to school in that area. Sure. And like they call it code switching, like change my <laughs> denima just in terms of the way that I'm engaging in different contexts. Mm -hmm. And I realized that it wasn't only me that did that. There was lots of people as I was, I'm quite introspective and, and like to listen and, and see how people engage in different areas. And I realized that this was something that there had to be more. There had to be more of an understanding to how South Africans are navigating spaces, sure. how um, I would go, you know, into a, a, a shop and then they would immediately speak to me in a language that I didn't really know just because of the fact that I am black sure. and they're expecting me to speak in some South African language and I couldn't respond and I was embarrassed to respond because my accent in Isuzulu is, is like terrible. So the, the more that I stopped speaking it because I was embarrassed, the more I lost it over sure, the years. Sure. Um, and so it was just all these little things that happened, even in, in school, just figuring out which kind of friends. My my black friends, for example, and I had an amazing group of black friends, would be very um, like confused. just confused oh, about the way that I lived mm -hmm. and, and when they'd come and sleep over at my house, just the way that we engaged in that household was very different to the way that they had sleepovers and the things that they would eat. And, you know, just every little aspect of my life was different um, to that group of friends. And then mm -hmm. I would have white friends and then the, it, it wouldn't be so different. So I was also trying to navigate even in my friendship groups at school who am I and how do I engage in these different circles sure. um, and it was going into high school that these things became deeper my mom my godmother Kim was always mindful of this fact she always knew she wanted me to learn Zulu but if you know we weren't speaking at the house it was very difficult for me to learn it so uh, instead of, you know, you get to choose Afrikaans or Zulu in, in high school, mm -hmm. she made me do Zulu. So sure. it wasn't that she was unaware of these things, but it was quite difficult for her to to process even just hair issues. Like my friends, my black friends would laugh at the fact that I didn't because white people don't wear cream. Like my husband <laughs> still doesn't put cream on every single day and neither did they. And I would come to school with like ashy Maybe legs, gray <laughs> legs, because they just don't put cream on every day. And sure. only in high school did I learn like, oh, my black friends are putting cream on every day. They're using this <laughs> hair stuff that I can then use because my godmother had no idea and didn't live like that. So sure. it was through friends and family in these other circles that we began to learn like, what do I need for my hair? What do I need for my kind of skin? How do I engage in different circles? How do I start to now learn a language that I've lost? Um, but it didn't it wasn't like an easy thing to always speak about. Sure. I always felt embarrassed. I always felt shy. I always felt like, you know, what did I do wrong? Even sure. though it wasn't really anybody's fault. And I think everyone tries. My Like my godmother tried to the best of her ability. Mm -hmm. My mom also tried. Um, my sister, unfortunately, is also very, very terrible <laughs> with speaking Isuzulu. Um, sure. But it's something that we 
like are very aware of and I think it impacted us in a negative way in terms of having opportunities, getting employment, just engaging with other spaces Mm -hmm. Um, because I always distanced myself from those spaces where I felt like, oh no, they're going to diss my Zulu now. The way I'm saying this word is not going to be the way. So I just kind of withdrew from those types of environments. Um, So yeah, I'm going on a very long story (laughs) just to say that navigating all of these things and and poverty as well I think knowing that my mom was dependent on this family Mm. in some way that they they provided employment for her they provided job opportunities just in terms of like when she left the the gym at in Hatfield where would she go they let her stay in her house and they never they never made it feel like us and them so uh, it's something that I'm only reflecting on now that it was us and them Mm -hmm. but she always made us feel like we are family you know I was always a daughter and that's why I say she's my mother it wasn't this you know people say my 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 maid's daughter or my helper's daughter not that we're ever my mom was ever a maid but it's just sometimes people speak in a terminology and I've had friends that have grown up also in white households who are people of color that have always never been part of that family sure so I think like understanding these these things in terms of the way that people engage in a space even in that household I knew my mom was dependent on this household but it wasn't said blatantly but you could read between the lines that my mom was kind of just living in that house and she didn't have her own room and I always wondered why didn't my mom not have a car why Mm. does she not (laughs) you know from a young age you ask these questions like I don't understand why my mom is in the situation where she doesn't have her own house and doesn't have her own car and she can't afford schooling for us um but at that stage you don't really understand Mm. it's only Mm. with hindsight that you do so i think questioning these things and questioning the way that i was raised in that navigating those types of perplexities i think really helps me see the world with that kind of lens that I understand that it's not as black and white as yep. everyone might make it as, mm-hmm. <laughs> excuse the pun, it's not as black and white as people may seem. It's sure. not as easy to just come to restoration as people may think. Yep. Um, there's so many underlying stories that we still need to hear and mm-hmm. let people speak about um, from both sides, from all different types of races. and that's made me really just question how I engage in my workspace in terms of my friends and my family but I thought that my work could really make a a difference in this space and so that's why I was always drawn to to work that would kind of uplift Mm. other people Mm. because I also felt that I had an amazing opportunity and an amazing blessing like why did God bless me why did we have that connection in KZN why was I were we able to come up to Joburg and why was I able to go to Bryanston Primary and Bryanston High like why did I get this opportunity because there were even though there were lots of difficulty there were so many fruits and benefits Mm. that I got Mm. because of that Mm. and so I'm very mindful of like how 
can we have more people that are mindful of making sure that everyone has a seat at mm, the table mm, mm, and everyone has an opportunity and a, and a chance to grow. Mm. And it doesn't just have to be families like Kim. It can be in business. It can be in schools. It can be in all the different spheres that we have in society mm, to mm. really be mindful, sorry, to mm. really be mindful of how are we making sure that everyone has an opportunity. So... Yeah, sure. Timba, I know I'm going yeah, sure. <laughs> down no, a rabbit I'm, hole now. Yeah, lovely. I'm, I'm really, I'm enjoying, I'm enjoying just hearing your story. And, you know, and one of the things that we were discussing in the previous podcast, again, as I mentioned earlier, is this thing of empathy. Mm. And, and you're alluding to the fact that not everything is black and white. And I think that's such a poignant point, especially in the context of South Africa, where we live in such a polarized society, obviously by design, but sadly, even after the design, the effects of what was done still permeate and influence and impact us at varying spaces, varying degrees. It reminds me of a saying that says, not everybody who is skin to me is kin to me. Sure. You know? And I think I love the idea that you said, Kim, where you, you first met each other, she, she immediately was attached. You know, there was something mm. supernatural in many ways. And I think I'm blessed by the idea that she was a believer. Let's begin there. But I think even as I as you unpack your story, there is this thing of navigating South Africa, which is way more complex, even though there's complexities everywhere, but there's a peculiarity in your complexity that is unique to you in your own walked or lived path that in certain spaces, you might find that you're not getting empathy where you ought to be getting empathy and vice versa, simply because you can't speak Zulu, for example, it becomes a barrier to connection. Mm. It's like, okay, no, but she's black. How is she supposed to speak my language? Is she a traitor? Is she a sellout? You mm. know, th that type of thing. And I think what it does then help us do also is that a lot of people are listening and they're like, you know, what? how can I help? There's so many kids. I think there's about 63% fatherlessness. We have the highest fatherlessness rate in Sub-Saharan Africa. There are kids without parents, period. We know what happened with the COVID, people dying, you know, mortuaries couldn't cope. So we've increased in terms of the number of orphans and kids that do need loving homes mm. to take them in and raise them. And somebody is sitting somewhere, maybe it's a white or vice versa, and, and they're like, I'm going to adopt a black child. However, when I'm adopting that black child, they are going to be a, 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 a Smith, for instance. Mm. And so in the Smith home, we speak English mm -hmm. and that's how we do things. And so I am not going to raise them as a Zulu, for example. You know, what, what would you say to that, to those parents based on what you experienced? How, how would that family best serve that child? Does it serve them to say, you know what? I know you're black, but you're a smith, so I'm not going to teach you Sutu or Kosa or any of the languages that are spoken by black people in this country. You're going to just speak English. Is that putting that kid in an advantage or is it putting them in a disadvantage, albeit inadvertently? Yeah. So I definitely think it's, it's both because when I think of, of heaven and that we all adopt it, into heaven right. we do we we become more like jesus we yes. have a kingdom culture so we will become like our our kingdom mm -hmm. however we are also celebrated 
in terms of our diversity, when sure. we see revelations, that, you know, in heaven we'll all be praising in different languages and tongues and, and the races will be represented. And so even though you will become and wholeheartedly become part of that family as an adopted child, you will become that Smith. Sure. And I think it's so important to feel like you belong yeah. completely, mm-hmm. that you're not... Um, you don't feel separate. Right. So I think it's it's such a it's a, such a fine thing to balance because that's something that I always I always um, hold on to that I really wanted to. It was more difficult for me because I had my two moms right, there. Right, right. But I I was always like, do I really belong to you, Kim? Like, sure. am I like if my mom had to die, you know, what would happen, and and vice versa. And I'm just saying there's such, such an important thing, uh, you know, even in psychology, they speak about attachment theory. You want your child and that adopted child to feel like they are completely yours, Mm, that mm, even mm. if they, you know, make the most trouble or sin or whatever, that they will still be part of that family. That even if they want to understand where they come from and their background and their heritage, they are still a smith. And so that's what I want to start with. But from the Smiths family's angle, let's just use that analogy, is how do they make sure that that person, their identity, that their skin color, their heritage is celebrated Mm -hmm. in that family? How do we as a family embrace, oh, wow, our daughter comes from this heritage. She spoke, she's, you know, predominantly that family speaks that language. How mm-hmm. do we then as a family, not just this child now must go to Zulu lessons. How do we as a family sure. learn Zulu wow. together to mm. make sure that it is all of us, the like we're thing. all engaging wow. in this. Yeah. That's good. And that we want to embrace who she is and embrace mm. that heritage within our household. And that can look like so many different things but as long as there's that intentionality from the family that wants to understand her background and her heritage i think that's so so important i do think it's not it's never going to be so easy it's not like a a simple process Mm -hmm. but i think you know we should understand that she is going to be two um things she's going to have a heritage she's going to bring that even just in terms of her DNA and the and the way that she lives, like I have a little sister, um, Kenya Grace, who was adopted. So there's me, my and my sister who are biological Zander, and then Kenya was adopted when I was 16. So Kim adopted Kenya right. from Timbisa. So her family wasn't in the picture because we couldn't find. Well, th- she wasn't in the picture. However, Kenya, it's different. You can see that they, um, that she she's growing into a person that you don't even know like in terms of just her body structure for example let's just say Mm -hmm. um i had my mom growing up so i could see kind of obviously it's not exactly the same but i could look to something and see a similar kind of model that i would perhaps be one day Sure, sure. (laughs) whereas kenya for example didn't have that she didn't have like any picture or anything of what she would potentially sure. look like wow. um and i just think for her like growing up and knowing that she's not going to look like the family around her also just is something that was difficult for her to process and navigate as well and i i just think it's so important in america you see it a lot that a lot of um 
families that are adopting children are really taking initiative to understand the background, to potentially involve the birth moms if they want to be involved. And I know Oliver is very... um, He's an advocate for, you know, Oliver from our church. Yes, yeah. He's an advocate for foster homes because adoption is definitely really important. But let's start with fostering kids. If there is a need and there's an opportunity for the birth family to come back and integrate into that child's life, that is the first prize. And I know that makes the adoption journey so much more complex because once you have that child, you want it to be yours. Sure. And you want to, You a lot of adopted mothers or yeah are, are very nervous about the family coming back to take the child or for anything or for that child to reject them as the mother because now they found their birth mother. Wow. So it's, it's also on the side of that family to find healing and, and understand that actually it is a a tricky process but you are loved by this child that you even if they find their birth mother and love that birth mother you are as much loved and it doesn't reduce your love and so i just think it's an emotional there's a lot of emotions around it but it can be such a beautiful thing because when we know that there are difficult things that we have to explore and speak about um, it just opens up such beautiful relationships mm, going mm. forward. And I've seen it with so many friends that have been adopted before that have their birth mothers come back into the picture. And, and what does that relationship look like? Me having my two mothers, you know, they went through their difficult moments, but they were just moments. Sure. And even to this day, they are they love each other. And Kim now lives in England. And my mom, you know, will sometimes go with us to visit. And they're drinking wine and catching up and it's such a beautiful thing and my mom loves loves them as if they you know her own family and so yeah I I would just encourage people that are navigating the space of how do we you know make people feel like they belong and feel loved completely but also celebrate who they are and who their history you know informs them to be Sure, power, power, power. No, thank you. I think we're so privileged from for the, from the mere fact that you have have walked a journey, have experienced a journey. And I think so many people are are trying to um, to uh, to adopt. Or you know, the point is, we want people want to help. Mm. You know, but sometimes you do, and this is going to be the point that we're going to segue into now. There is an element where we can help or have a good intention, but with inadvertently negative consequences and i think there is none more closer to home than in the in the adoption space for instance where there is this intention to say i want it i want the family to be united but sometimes opening other elements or or creating a a, a, creating a diverse heritage within Mm. one family unit can almost feel like it's threatening the core of the unity within the family and what you're saying is that that is actually not the case. And it just makes me think that we've recently, um, uh, we've recently been blessed with a baby boy. And I remember from the first time where we were blessed with a baby girl, Hope, our firstborn daughter, I really thought to myself, I can't love any other kid more than this kid, right? <laughs> You know, and then Emmy came and, you know, Willow came and then now the, the, the boy comes and you realize that actually I, I think, I don't think we, we, we un- appreciate our capacity for love. Exactly. You know, that not only does this work downwards to, to the children, but it also works 
upwards in an adopted home that is actually such a blessing to have mm. not only one heritage but a diverse heritage where you can draw on all the richness on, of both without actually undermining mm. one or privileging one love over the other. That's it for today. If you want to listen to Tobila's full TED Talk, it is in the description below. Catch us again next week as we continue our discussion with Tobila as we discuss how we can gain the age without the age harming others by ensuring that we flourish without leaving others behind. Until next time, sa lanigahle. Cheers. Bye-bye. Thank you for listening to Context. We pray that today's podcast helps you live your best life for God and that you're encouraged to invite others to do the same. If today's discussion was helpful to you, please take a moment to rate and review the podcast. In doing so, you will help others learn more about living for God in our context. If you would like to get in touch with us, please contact us on the details in the description. Because truly, context is everything.